Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys. Today's episode is sponsored by Marcy Dermansky Editorial Services. Marcy is now offering private editorial services to writers just like you. Is your manuscript in a box? Is it in the back of a drawer? Is it buried in the dark recesses of your computer? Is it uh, buried in your backyard? Writer and editor Marcy Dermansky would like to help you. She is the author of the critically acclaimed novels Bad Marie and Twins. She's won awards for her own work. And better yet, she's helped clients get their books published and win awards of their own. For more information, please visit MarcyDermansky.com. She's an editor. She can edit you. Go and hire her. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Hey, right. everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is me in a room with a desk and a window. This is an attempt to communicate via the internet. How are you? What's going on out there? My name is Brad Listy. I'm sitting here in Los Angeles, California. As usual, it's nice to be with you. Thank you for listening. My guest today is uh, Catherine Lacey. Her debut novel which is called Nobody Is Ever Missing, is due out from FSG Originals in July 2014. Uh, you can pre-order it right now, and I, I encourage you to do that. And if you happen to be listening to this episode after the fact, after uh, July of 2014, then you can go get the book immediately, which I also encourage. So I'll be talking with Catherine uh, momentarily. Before we get there, uh, I have a quick order of business. Uh, the show, this podcast, has a new logo. And I don't know if you've seen it, but uh, I have updated the logo. I'm in the process of updating things, and I think the logo looks better because it's no long, it no longer involves a, a picture of me. <laughs> it's like an actual logo. It's professionalized a bit. And uh, I, I'm also going to be updating the show's website soon. God willing. So stay tuned for that, you know, there, and there are going to be some uh, new developments that go along, uh, with the website, which, uh, are currently top secret, but I'll be talking more about it when the website finally goes live. 
soon. I hope. So uh, one more thing uh, related to that is that I think I'm going to start doing some merchandise. People have been asking me about this for a while. Asking me if I'm ever going to do uh, merchandise. Like coffee mugs and t-shirts and... Uh, I don't know. Half tees? <laughs> Belly shirts? I don't know. Uh, people seem to want merchandise. So I'm going to try to accommodate and make it happen. Uh, how do you do that, by the way? Does anyone know out, you know, out there know how to do that? i got to research that. If you're an expert on merchandise, you can email me. The address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Okay? So, uh, what else? I went to the dentist this morning. And, you know, I feel like I've, uh, been, ta- I've been to the dentist uh, a lot lately. But this was just a routine cleaning. I've had the appointment in my calendar for a long time. And uh, so I got up this morning. I was running a little late. I got in my car and I was uh, driving across town in a bit of a hurry over to Beverly Hills. It sounds fancier than it actually is, but you know, my dentist, her, uh, her office is in Beverly Hills. And so I'm trying to uh, make it over there in morning rush hour traffic, the tail end of rush hour traffic. And uh, as I'm doing this, some guy cuts me off. And he's in a red Mercedes. And uh, I slam on my brakes. And I experience a moment of uh, vocal road rage. I didn't honk. I'm not a person who honks, typically. I'm timid with the horn. But I will talk. On occasion. But I won't do it loud enough for anyone to actually hear me. I'm not, you know, I'm not a shouter. I'm not confrontational in that way. You know, my windows were rolled up, but uh, I was unleashing some uh, some road rage. I was briefly enraged. There was a hot flash of anger in my body, and uh, I said some stuff in the in the general direction of this red Mercedes. I unleashed a string of expletives, is what I'm saying, and I will not repeat them here. Not because I don't want you to hear them, but because I can't really remember what it was that I said. (laughs) You can imagine the scenario. So, there I am. I'm stopped in traffic. I'm uh, seething with anger at this guy in front of me. And then suddenly, uh, in the midst of it, I I snap out of it. I snap out of uh, this moment of unconsciousness. This unconscious road rage. And uh, I realize suddenly that the song Take On Me is playing on my car stereo at a considerable volume. You know what song I'm talking about? It's that one from the 1980s. Everybody knows this song, right? It's from a uh, Norwegian synth pop band called Aha. Uh, This song, incidentally, charted at number one in the United States in October of 1985. For those of you who might be interested. And so, I I guess my point is that uh, the song, Take On Me, in that moment, made me realize just how absurd uh, my situation was. How absurd my road rage was. The fact that I was stuck in traffic. The fact that I'm alive on this planet 
in this weird existence and uh, subject to the human condition and so on and so forth. So my point, I guess, is that it's hard to take yourself seriously when uh, this song is playing. You know what I mean? How do you how do you uh, take yourself? How do you take anything seriously when this song is playing? And so what happened, uh, you know, in this moment where uh, "Take on Me" is blasting from my speakers, and I'm I'm aware of it but I'm also enraged. What happened in that moment was that I found myself in a sudden state of emotional limbo because the road rage was still there. The aftershocks of the rage were still rippling uh, through my torso, if you will. But now uh, I was conscious of aha on my car stereo and uh, the music was undercutting the uh, feelings of righteousness associated with my rage and it left me confused I didn't know how to feel that's what I want to tell you I didn't know how to feel I was lost this morning in Beverly Hills on my way to the dentist I was emotionally lost okay hey everybody if you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. My guest today, once again, is Catherine Lacey. I really enjoyed talking with her. A very talented young writer uh, who also happens to be a uh, proprietress of a popular bed and breakfast in Brooklyn, New York. I imagine that you're going to be hearing a lot more about her in the weeks and months to come. So consider this an early warning shot. This is me. Uh, sending up a flare and telling you to be on the lookout. So here she is, ladies and gentlemen, this is Catherine Lacey, and her debut novel, once again, is called Nobody Is Ever Missing. Um, I'm in my boyfriend's apartment in Fort Greene. Okay, Brooklyn. And it's cold <laughs> in Brooklyn, yeah. Okay, and uh, 
you run a bed and breakfast in Brooklyn? Are you still doing that? I do. I do. Yeah, that's uh, that's a couple blocks away from here, um, and I live there um, at the moment, and I've been doing that for almost four years now. Um, I'm fascinated by this. Yeah, I am too. I, like sometimes I go up there and I'm like, "What is going? Why is this bed and breakfast attached to my house?" Um, well, yeah, it was a, it was an idea that I kind of um, walked into a little bit. Halfway walked into. Um, I moved into this collective in 2010 that had this random idea of starting this B and B, and they seemed to be working on it. And I was supposed to just be there for a sublet. I was going to be there for a month, but then the guy that. I was subletting from decided not to come back. And as that was happening, I kind of realized that I loved this whole B&B concept thing. And I really loved what I was living with. And so I kind of joined this collective, um, cooperatively owned business as it got off the ground. And yeah, it like made it possible. But the first, the first like six months a year, I still had to have like other work. Um, but then Things kind of took off. I, I was able to like quit the side jobs that I had um, after about, I guess, about a year. Okay. In the first six months, we were just like building it. So oh, okay. So let's let's try to let me, let me just try to like back up and, and get a feel for how this thing happened. So you're living in, uh, you said a collective apartment living situation. Yeah. And then somebody, I had, I, yeah. Okay, so you just you just have roommates. It's a, I'm picturing a bunch of like Bohemian Brooklyn artists. <laughs> Is that accurate or no? Um, somewhat like it's a, it was, especially at the beginning group Well, the, the group now we've always had like a really broad range of folks. Like there's a guy that's this kind of tech genius. I don't think of him as like a Brooklyn type necessarily at all. And we had like a kind of new age massage therapist slash a bunch of other things who's interesting and then it's like the goonies um, you got to have the tech genius it's like you know in every right <laughs> the tech genius we had like the nyu like grad student who's brilliant and um in different ways it was just a lot of i mean people were everybody was kind of creative but they weren't necessarily like you know struggling artists or um anything like that so okay so okay so um you're living in a in a rental apartment in a in some sort of yeah. br- in some sort of brownstone. Right? It's the second and third floor of a building in downtown Brooklyn, which is a really like dense area. So it's not it's not like from the outside, it's not pretty. Okay. It just looks like a crappy building with a bodega in it. Okay, and so but, and then uh, where is the where is the B and B? Is it on the upper floors from that? It's on the upper floor. Yeah, it's on the third floor. Okay, so how did you did you guys buy that, or did you just rent it out? And then... no, thank God we didn't buy it. We we have a we have a big lease of the whole building, um, and our landlord's incredibly good to us. This has been very helpful. Everything's like very much like, you know, we collect tax. Like we're registered. We have to deal with the Department of Buildings all the time. Like there's lots of, I mean, it's it's all like above ground. It's not kind of. You know, it's not just like an Airbnb kind of rigged up random thing, but right, right, right. Okay, and so um, you guys open, you guys go through all the red tape that you have to go through. Um, mm-hmm. You decorate, you paint. How many people can this be? In? What is the B and B called? First of all, I was called Three B. Three B is in boy. Three B is in boy. Okay, so you have uh, how many people can this thing accommodate? Um, there's four rooms. Um. And it, it, it can it, it can sort of accommodate a variety of different 
people, but not not more than like ten. Okay. I think. Okay. And so, what do you do? I don't know. Yeah, so, I don't know exactly. And so, what what is your job within the context of this thing? Like, what do you do on a day to day basis? Um, it varies. We have a meeting every week in which we all kind of because we're all equal partners. We you know in the building we do on the business together, um, and the kind of business decision like the. Uh, what am I trying to say? Profit allocation is a kind of interesting model that we all built together. Um, on the day day to day, I mostly do all my shifts on like one day because you basically there's four shifts in a day and everybody has to cover about four shifts a week. And I tend to just like to do all of mine in one day. So like for instance today, I probably won't even go over there. Um, but when I do um, work, it'll I'll do everything. I'll make breakfast and check people in and out, make beds, clean things, um, answer the phone, make bookings, just like everything. Um, you guys yeah. have a, do you guys have a restaurant in the thing? So, you, I mean, I guess it's a bed and breakfast, so there better be breakfast. <laughs> there is breakfast. It's not, it's not a restaurant. It's, um, it's a kitchen. It's, you know, it's a separate apartment for a and it has its own kitchen, um, which we use to make breakfast for the guests every morning. Um, and you must yeah. meet, you must meet some pretty cool people. I mean, I'm imagining you have like international travelers coming through, and totally, yeah, we meet fascinating people. There was like this for some reason this first one that's coming to mind is like this violin maker from Vermont, like this old kooky violin maker who was just fascinating and really wise. And we have lots of repeat customers. Um, uh, a guy that always writes about um, like the Tribeca Film Festival, he comes through a lot. Um, or he does like film coverage in general. Um, just like yeah, every I like everybody, just a million different people. And so you and you really don't have. I mean, it doesn't sound like you have to work like a regular forty-hour work week, and this thing supports you, and you're able to write. It sounds kind of like uh, perfect. Pretty ideal, yeah. That was, and that's that's the basic business model because we don't have employees, um, and because you know we control the whole overhead of everything and. Um, you know, we we the business it was planned. It wasn't just like we accidentally like lucked into it. We thought we were offered the space um, by the landlord when another um, tenant was kicked out, and um, we you know did some research and figured out that we're surrounded by all these hotels, but they're all very upmarket, and it was kind of a dearth of um, you know reasonably priced uh, hospitality anything really in in brooklyn and it was very doable i mean we 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 keep the prices intentionally low because we like to kind of appeal to like a wider variety of people instead of just like the people that are paying 200 dollars a night to stay at the marriott so what does um, it what does it cost to stay at the 3b um it ranges from we have a bunk room that's like a hostel style room that's like 50 i think 55 or 59 a night which includes breakfast um then like one 40 or 50, depending on the season, is a private room with a clean bed. And then um, there's a large room, which is really like the best deal. It stays booked most of the time. It has two queen beds. I think it's 180. And you can have four people in there. Oh, okay. So, that's, that's pretty yeah, good. That's it's, a pretty, good it's pretty good for New York. It's pretty good. Very for, good for New York. Yeah, I was going to yeah. say, it's pretty good for anywhere. So, um, yeah, and the business model is, is basically we all work 10 hours a week to basically pay for our roughly 10 hours a week to pay for our like basic living costs for all of us. And so you, um, and you guys live on the lower floors and like the, the 3B basically subsidizes your rent there plus a little. It subsidizes a little bit. And then also we, um, there's some other things that have to happen like outside of the, 
the day-to-day chores. Like there's marketing stuff, there's, you know, QuickBooks, there's um, just lots of different kind of maintenance things that have to happen. So sometimes it adds up to a little bit more. And um, we keep track of our own hours and then based on the hours that you've worked in a given month and then also historically, that's how we allocate profits. So it, it's 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 flexible in that way. It's not just like everybody lives rent-free and whatever and just like work up there whenever you do. It's like it, there's a system to it. Right. Um, and if you can work less than one month, maybe you like don't totally make your rent or you work a little extra a different month, you make a little extra money. Right. It just kind of depends. Well, I'm just fascinated because it's always like, you know, there's always – the struggle for uh, anybody, but for creative people and writers especially, uh, to try to totally. make, to try to make it all work. And this sounds like a creative approach to making a living, and also making a living in a way that is um, amenable to getting writing done. You know, because a lot of day jobs will suck up all your time and energy, and this one doesn't seem to do that. Absolutely, yeah. And that's, I mean, that was definitely like a problem that I was. Facing, I, I was kind of thinking about leaving New York, which is why I moved into this place on a sublet, because it didn't seem, you know, at that point I hadn't even started the novel, um, and I wasn't really sure if it was if New York was really a hospitable place for me to live anymore. I, I came up here for grad school, and I really loved it, but I was like, not sure that I was gonna stay. Where'd you go to grad school? I went to Columbia for uh, creative nonfiction. Okay, okay, and where are you from originally? Uh, originally in Mississippi, um, but I moved up here from New Orleans, which is where I went to college. All right. Okay. My folks are from yeah. Louisiana. Uh, I say. Oh, that, really? What part? Um, you know, South Louisiana, small towns. That's like about. An, my mom's about was you know from like thirty minutes from Baton Rouge. My dad was about an hour from there in a smaller you know small little town. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Isn't that Lafayette? Was it? No, 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 no. It's like Morgan City okay. and Morgan City and Plaquemine, just like. Ah, okay. Like, you know, Plaquemine's nothing. I mean, you can drive through it in two minutes. (laughs) Um, Yes. But I grew up going down there a lot. So you're from the South, uh, born and raised in Mississippi. Yes. Okay. I just talked to Mary. Do you know Mary Miller? I just talked to her. Mary Miller, of course. Yeah. Yeah. She's a Mississippi writer. It's true. So. Yeah, uh, I don't, I think I met her briefly at AWP a while back, but um, yeah. She's from Oxford, I think. Or I could be wrong. I think so. Or she's going back to Oxford. Yeah. I know she's going back to Oxford to teach, but where are you from in Mississippi? Right. Tupelo, which is uh, about an hour from Oxford. Is that, isn't, that where, isn't that where Elvis is from? That's where Elvis is from. Yeah. Wow. What's Tupelo like? Um, it's funny. It's, well, I'm right. That's kind of what I'm writing in this essay right now about is like that, the question of like, what's, what's Mississippi like when you meet somebody that's not from there? Um, it's compli- I have a very like complicated relationship to being from the South because you don't sound like you're from the South. I don't even detect the, don't, slight, the slightest twang. Yeah, I <laughs> I actually was a huge like Shakespeare geek when I was um, a teenager, and I went to like Shakespeare camp and I took diction classes <laughs> and stuff. So I think I just kind of got like worked out of me. Really? Did you I mean was it something yeah. was it something that was conscious or was it something that just happened by accident? Like did you want to get rid of your southern accent? I don't think I I don't think I really wanted to. I mean, I, you know, growing up you don't know that you have an accent because everybody else does. Like mine wasn't as bad as some other people, so I don't think it really um but like there's home videos and stuff stuff of, you know, that my parents took and I can I can hear it in the home videos, but 
What about when you get, um, do you ever get drunk and like all of a sudden you can start doing it or if you go back down there? Yes, definitely. Definitely right. when when I'm hanging out with friends from there at work. Um, if I've had a few drinks, definitely it comes out. Yeah. Cause I'm not, I was raised, I mean, my, my family is from there, but I was raised in the, uh, upper Midwest. And so, uh, even when I'm down there and I get drunk, I start talking with an accent. So I can only imagine what it's like if you're actually from Tupelo. Wait, are you just one of those people that sort of absorbs like whoever you're talking to? Yeah, no, You'll just it, end up with kind of a British accent with yes, your British friend. It's or... completely obnoxious. <laughs> like if I'm, I remember I was in France once or just wherever I am. And like, I, I speak like mediocre French, mediocre Spanish. And, uh, but I'll find myself, even when I'm speaking English to someone who's from like a foreign country, I'll start speaking English with their accent. It's very bizarre. Like as if that's going to somehow help them, you know, uh, does that make any yeah, sense? My boyfriend makes fun of his mom because every time she calls like the Chinese food, this is sort of on PC, but every time she calls to order like Chinese food, um, <laughs> he thinks that she, she kind of, turns her voice into as if she's speaking English in a non-native way and like Mandarin <laughs> is her first language. She's like, yes, thank you. I can tell her that I understand. It's not, I mean, it's, it's <laughs> I'm not even thinking about it. There's nothing conscious about it. I think I'm just trying to be clear. And for some reason I like reflexively think they'll, it'll be easier for them to understand me if I speak English in an, in their accent. I don't know. It's very, yeah, it's like an empathy accent. Exactly. I'm empathizing. I'm not criticizing. All right. So, okay, so you grew up in Tupelo, um, happy childhood, enjoyed it there, wanted to get out, hated it, miserable. What was it like? Um, like a mix of all of those things. I mean, I think I had a pretty fine childhood, nothing crazy, but um, I also like really, like I have this, I think when I was in first grade, we had to write a book. Like they gave us like an empty notebook basically and they were like, write a story. And I wrote this story about, like, this girl buying a car and, like, leaving Mississippi and never coming back. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, like, I don't I don't know why. I just had this – I didn't really – I mean, I, maybe I did kind of hate it. But I didn't really have any reason to hate it. It was sort of, like, all I knew. But I just had this feeling like I wasn't supposed to be there. And this is sort of why I have, like – I feel like I have complicated feelings about Mississippi is that I, there was just something about, like, the conservativeness of the state and like that sort of staunch um like strong specific opinions that just made me uncomfortable for some reason even like a really young age no, so I, I get that i get that i felt the same way i mean it was a, I mean it was yeah same, pretty much the same in the midwest and you know my family's from the south so i was around a lot of that and I think there's a lot of fear in it. I don't know. I've thought a lot about it, you know, but you, you think about yeah. like, social conservatism in particular um, just rubs me the wrong way because I'm kind of a live and let live person. And when people have really specific ideas about how people should be conducting themselves and who should love whom and all that kind of stuff, like I just get edgy and I wonder why that's there. And I think that fear is what I've come to. I think that's what Especially in a child, maybe you kind of reflexively move away from that if you're wired the way that we are. I don't know. Yeah, I yeah, I don't know if it's a matter of wiring or what, but um, yeah, what is I definitely it? just <laughs> I don't know. That's what I've been trying to figure out because it's not like like I there's other people in my family that don't feel that way, and it's it's not because I don't think that they're like wired in a way that is just. Fearful. I don't know. Yeah, no, because I'm the same way. I'm the weird one in my family. And like, it's not like my sisters are super conservative or, 
you know, but they just, they're less troubled by it than I am. You know? Yes. Yeah. Like, like, I think, I think it, it's, it's more just like, how troubled are you going to be by it? <laughs> right. Um, it, it, it just freaks me out. Like it makes me uncomfortable. If I stay in Mississippi for more than like more than a week, I just start to get kind of cagey and insane. Okay. And I like rant at people too. Like I've become really, um, like I've kind of reacted against Southern politeness, I think. And, it, and I don't like it when I take it so far, like getting into conversations with people that disagree with you and, and, you know, when you start ranting like an insane person, they stop listening to you, which is no good. It kind of like defeats the purpose of having a conversation. Yeah. So you mean you start ranting or they start ranting? Yeah, no, I start ranting. Yeah. You can't do that. I found, I've learned that the hard way. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I'm still learning it. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, you know, it's like it's a really delicate communication is really delicate. And it, it you know, it can be delicate when you're uh, debating, uh, you know, points. That, Healthcare or. Right, yeah, political gay stuff. Gay rights or whatever, whatever it is. Anything. But I mean, like communication in relationships, whether they're family relationships, friend relationships, you're talking about politics, language choice is really important. And. Uh, especially, True. especially when you start to get emotional, it can be difficult to manage it. And I'm, uh, I find myself more fixated on that now that I'm a parent, I think just because I feel, yeah, like, I I bet. feel well, I just feel like, you know, what you say and how you say it can, you, you start to realize like the impact of your words and, um, you know, that's always been there. I guess it's just more at the front of my mind lately. When you have like another little being like reflecting it back at you, you realize whatever you say in front of them, they're just going to you know, repeat, repeat right back to you. Yeah. Like the other night, my daughter, my, my daughter, like I was, um, my daughter's taking a bath and like, so she's just like playing in the tub and I have my phone. I'm kind of sitting next to the tub and I'm like texting or whatever it is that I'm doing. I'm looking at my phone while she's like giving herself a puppet show (laughs) and she's, she's three years old. And suddenly she looks at me and she's like, daddy, why do you make that face? And I said, what face? And she makes this like face where her brow furrows. <laughs> like, she just like she just got me, you know. I was like, "Damn, I got to put yeah. this phone down. What am I doing?" You know. So they keep you honest. Yeah, I bet. Uh, so you don't have kids. You're not married yet. No, okay. no, I don't. But I do like kids. They're interesting, bizarre little things. Okay, but wait a minute. Um, I read that essay about you uh, giving your eggs away. So in, in Oh, I did. So I guess in theory, <laughs> there there is like a, a, a little you out there somewhere, right? Oh, yeah. I guess you're right. You know, I always... Yeah, there there are, there are children out there that have my genetic code, which is just so funny to me. So, it's not the same thing as being a parent, you know? Yeah, no, totally different. But you did... I mean, I find this... This is interesting. You did this... Uh, a financial decision to try to support your writing, yet another creative way to make money for people listening out there who <laughs> who are wondering how to subsidize their creative work. Like, how did you come to that decision? Um, sort of impulsively. I mean, I, I think it was a, I mean, I know it was a good thing for me because it, it got me to where I am now. And um, I didn't have any kind of like medical complication with it. But when I think back to like how I just sort of jumped into it, um, or how I, I don't, I mean, it was, I don't know, six or seven years ago now, so I don't quite remember my exact mental state going into it, but um, how old were you? I just moved to, I was 22, right. 3, 23, yeah. 23, 24. I think I did it right right around there. Um, I don't know, I just moved to New York, and I was in grad school, and I was working, and, you know, just kind of, 
um, had no money and was just sort of like trying to figure out how I would ever have enough time to to write. I mean, even for even though I was in grad school and like that was like I was supposed to be just like that was supposed to be the one time where it, it didn't matter um, what else you had to do. You just had to write. And I had deadlines and I had like everything. I know I was writing a lot. I just didn't know. I didn't know what I was going to do once it ended or like what the next step would be. And so I kind of, I don't know. I just decided I would donate my eggs. And so what they pay you what? Eight grand for this? Eight grand. Yeah. But I did it twice kind of within a couple months. And yeah. then I lived off of that honestly for like probably a year and a half. No that shit. plus I worked for a while, but like I really, I had a super cheap apartment in Crown Heights and I was just like super scrupulous and spent all my time writing anyway. So I really stretched it out like a lot. So 16 grand for a year and a half in, in Brooklyn. That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What were you Before eating? then the, the B&B. This is, hmm? pre, this is pre 3B. <laughs> oh yeah. It's pre 3B. Okay. Yeah. And, but that's, what were you eating during this time? I mean, stretching this money. God, I don't know. Probably a lot of like free cheese cubes at readings and stuff. <laughs> like, just some I really, s- sweaty like, cheese cubes and some Chardonnay in a plastic cup. Yes, yes, <laughs> these are my leanest years, certainly. Um, well, that's interesting. And you didn't have any kind of like, was there any kind of emotional component to giving your eggs away and thinking about the fact that your genetic code would be living in somebody else's child or? There really wasn't, and I, I guess people kind of warned me that, like, oh, eventually, though, you'll you'll feel upset about it, and I still don't. I'm still kind of like, well, we're all these, like, I, I mean, we're all sort of made out of the same stuff, and when you start thinking about just ancestors and evolution and stuff, it can, I mean, I just don't, I don't really put that much value, I think, in the genetic code of it, because yeah. I didn't do any of the actual parenting. I think the reason that people are attached to their children is because they they raise them or they physically birth them in some way but i didn't you know it's not the same as like giving up a child for adoption or something like that which to me that seems like it would be really hard but um i don't know egg donation is a really weird thing you're just so detached from it it almost seems like you had some kind of surgery and as a result someone's out there that's kind of related to you but they're just uh, not, you know. Plus, you made somebody happy. These people can't have a kid, and uh, you have pretty good genes, right? You don't have any like crazy stuff wrong with you. You're an attractive woman. You're young. You're healthy, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I hope there's nothing too crazy wrong with me. I mean, they do <laughs> test you for all of these things, but oh, dude, trust I mean, me. Also, everyone, I, everyone. These tests are crazy these days. Like, yeah, everyone's got shit. Like when you go through a pregnancy, it's like it's a roller coaster. Nobody told me about that, you know, but. Um, yeah, there's all sorts of worries, you know, I, like I, I think going into it blind as, uh, I think men are maybe more predisposed to do than women. I just thought, Oh, you get pregnant. It's nine months later. The baby comes out. <laughs> like I, <laughs> I didn't realize like that. It's a, it's a permanent, I always joke now whenever like a friend of mine, uh, becomes a parent for the first time or they get the news. I always say like, welcome to a state of permanent fear, you know, because it's like this shift. You're like, holy shit, like things could go wrong. And then you get emotionally invested and then, you know, and then the kid arrives and it's just, it's, it's, uh, it's sort of like an epic level of, uh, care and attachment. So. Yeah. I feel like I'm already kind of like that. Like I already am aware of all the different ways that things can go wrong. You know, like that, that fear, like I've, I've heard my other friends that are parents talk about this, where you just 
get like freaked out about all the different things that could happen to your kid and like what if they get sick or what if they fall or what if this happens i'm like thinking that all the time just like walking down the street i'm like what if that car like jumps the curb and flattens me right here on the sidewalk you know (laughs) yeah um no i mean i like i I, I worry about my daughter here i'll just confess to you like a weird like you know recurring fear for me is that i will have um a recurring thought of my daughter getting her fingers slammed in a car door and it, oh, no, yeah, I mean, I, I worry about this, like any door. I'm just like her little tiny fingers. I can't tolerate the idea of that. And it'll be such an intense um, fear that like I my hands are sweating right now talking about it. It's a weird thing <laughs> for me. I'm like terrified of her. Well, you get fingers. in and out of cars all the time. Yeah. And so I'm always right? ca- I'm, yeah, I'm always careful. But I'm just they, like, they're just so fragile. She's so sweet and like little bird bones. And, you know, it's like, yeah, you just want to take care of the cargo, the, the child well i mean the good thing is like if she breaks a couple of limbs during her childhood she'll just be like that much more interesting and agile yeah. i hope <laughs> one hope she's she might have to get her tonsils out and i'm like this has been completely worrying me because she would have to be uh you know to be anesthesia and it's like a surgery and i would be i will i will be a nervous wreck like i just have you ever been under anesthesia oh plenty of, i had my tonsils out i've plenty of times you oh know. you have sure yeah so this is this is her inheritance for me. It was getting her tonsils out. I guess. I mean, I think it's from her mother because, like, when kids, like, you know, they have to get their tonsils out. It's uh, sleep apnea and adenoids. That's my wife's side of the family, not mine. I had a. Uh, I was like, this is going to sound gross, but I, you know, I had a lot of like uh, throat infections in high school because I was dipping, which is disgusting. Oh no! Yeah, and so it was like this period where I kept getting strep throat, and then my tonsils were inflamed, and it was just. Like when I was young, I had absolutely no fear or trepidation about getting stuff. Like they were like, do you want your tonsils out? I was like, sure. And it was the most painful thing and uncomfortable like three weeks of my life. Um, just really? Like, yes. If you get your tonsils out as an adult, it's a bear. Or at least it was back, mm. when, back when I got mine out. Because you, wow. can't, you can't swallow. I lost like 25 pounds in like two weeks. Uh, oh, no. Yeah, I wasn't eating anything. Actually, my, my boyfriend, he just had strep. When I got, I got back from a trip a couple weeks ago, and I got came back to this extremely sick boyfriend, um, and it got he I think he went in, got a strep test, didn't have it, and then went back and um, turns out he did have it, but now he's like now he's afraid he he just gets he gets strep like every year or so, and now he's afraid that he's going to have to get his tonsils out. Yeah, well, if, he, if, he, if I'm just does. revealing all this medical information about my boyfriend, I'm sure he doesn't mind. Yeah. Hi, Peter. Uh, hi, Peter. Uh, let's talk about your boyfriend's medical history. Um, <laughs> I kid. But no, but if, if he does wind up getting his tonsils out, uh, the last point that I would make is that you're going to be uh, nursing. He's going to be in a chair oh, no. or in bed with like a lot of Vicodin, and you're just going to be like sitting next to him while he like moans. <laughs> Oh, no. It's not fun. Unless, Curing all of his food. Yeah, unless, you know what, unless the procedure has gotten um, more sophisticated since like 1992 or whatever it was. It's entirely possible. I, let's, let's hope that it has. Yeah, one would hope, right? Hopefully they just go in yeah. there and it's like, you know, they laser them or something. But back when, back in my day, they like ratcheted my jaw open and, you know, it was this like unsightly thing. So anyhow, um, back, <laughs> back to you. I feel like we just got off course in like my parental fears and uh, tonsils and whatnot. But. <laughs> Um, so I want to ask you about, uh, Mississippi a little bit more, you know, growing up, getting out of there, how that decision happened, uh, what your family was like, like, are you from creative folk? Um, 
my my dad took me to a lot of like art exhibits. Like I'm from a kind of I guess an anomaly of a southern family. Um and then my dad was super interested in art and so I grew up going to art exhibits and um just, you know, museums of all kinds. Um Did you travel a lot? But as a he kid? did he's did you get out of the South? Like I traveled to no, like to Atlanta, you know, or to like Montgomery, Alabama, or like occasionally to New Orleans. Um it was mainly southern travel. I didn't we never like left the country together like that in the furthest way. Everyone was like Philadelphia to go to some art exhibit or something up there. Um yeah, so I it, he's not he wasn't a maker at all. And he read to us at night. I mean, I did my mom. My mom's like a um she directs a lot of stuff at the community theater and she, I think she wanted to be a choreographer when she was a kid. She tap dances and like or she used to when she was still working at the um uh, elementary school that I went to, she would tap dance in the in the faculty uh, talent show at the end of every year. Um, <laughs> I don't know. So there's like creativity did, happening, wait, but wait, how did you feel about your mom tap dancing? Like as a child, was that cool? Was like my mom's tap dancing, or was it like? I guess my mom's the cool. She was always the cool mom. She was like my mom is the cool mom. Totally. Why, yeah. Why? Just like beside from the tap dancing, like was she just was your house the house where people could drink beer, or was it she was just like no, not that kind of cool. Like this is this is like conservative Protestant Mississippi. Like nobody's house was the house where you could drink beer. Like uh, there wasn't. I mean, or I wasn't invited to that house. Right. Um. Yeah. It. It was, yeah, it was um, a pretty, like, I guess, I don't know, somewhat sheltered upbringing. Um, but why was but your, like, your mom was cool because she, you could just talk to her and... I don't even think it was that because I really didn't, like, actually my friend Elena's mom was the mom that I felt like I would talk to. Like, if I was, like, had a crush on a boy or something, I could tell, I could talk about it at her house. I don't know why my mom, my mom was just a cool mom because she was, she did plays and stuff. She was, like, really peppy and, like cool i don't know yeah she just, um, she just had it whatever it is <laughs> yeah okay. yeah and did you have siblings um yeah a younger sister and older brother and then later well and, and a half brother who wasn't around and then later i um my mom remarried and um i got two stepsisters bonus oh wow okay so your parents split up so, when you were a kid yeah how old were you um i was 14 all right and but I also uh, I also went to my my granddad sent me to boarding school that same year, so I kind of like moved out when that happened. I don't know. I was sort of sheltered from it in a certain way. Like I already felt like I was sort of on my own, doing my own thing by the time that happened. Where did you go to boarding school? Um, in Tennessee to uh, Baylor, this place in Chattanooga. Okay, is that where like Reese Witherspoon went? No, she didn't go there. No, I don't think so. Okay, is it is it like a fancy boarding school? Is it like I guess all boarding schools seem fancy to me? But all boarding schools are somewhat fancy. Um, somebody somebody said this, and I don't know if I agree with it. That boarding school is like rich people's neglect. Um, but we definitely weren't like rich, and I did, definitely didn't feel neglected. But there is something sort of like um, something sort of strange about it. I mean, it was like extended summer camp. I wouldn't call it fancy. In the in the in the world of boarding schools, it is definitely like bottom of the heap. Uh, I love Baylor for the record, but um, it was definitely it's not like primarily a boarding school, um, and it is in Tennessee. It's not it wasn't that expensive. I mean, my granddad was able to just uh, pay for it. What was the uh, so, where is it in Tennessee? You said Chattanooga. 
Yeah. Okay. And so you just went up there. Was it were, were you was it weird to leave home at 14? Did were you sad and scared or were you just like let's do this? I'm ready to be. I was totally ready. I I was talking my brother went also um 2 years before me. And when he went, I was already talking about like I cannot wait for 2 years when I can go, you know. Wow. Um See, so I'm, like at 12 I'm, I was like ready to go. Now in my mind I'm fast forwarding thinking like there's no way my daughter's leaving home at 14. Like I <laughs> I, want, I want her home as long as possible. Um, but yeah. I, I guess if your parents were splitting up, they probably... Well, how many do you have? Just one. Yeah, so add add two more yeah. and then a bunch of years, and you will probably be okay with her. I'll be like, sure, <laughs> Going to boarding school. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, man. So, okay, so, and you got a good education. You're out of Chattanooga. Um, and then what about getting... You said you went to college undergrad in New Orleans? Yeah, I um, when I was like a sophomore or something, I just picked Loyola, New Orleans, from like a stack of brochures that was in the dorm or something, and Wait a minute. I just made up my mind did that you, I was uh, going there. Did you take any? My aunt teaches at Loyola. She's a. Oh really? Yeah. Did you ever take a class with Jane Chauvin? Does that ring a bell? No. Uh, and she runs like the, I, I want to say she runs the English department or something like that. I could be totally wrong, but she teaches it. She's taught at Loyola what, for what's years. What's her last name again? Chauvin. And so her husband, Elmore, is my godfather, Elmore Chauvin. <laughs> uh, he, he's a riot. <laughs> That's an awesome name. Yeah, the name yeah. sounds familiar, but um, I was actually, I was a double major, and so I was half at the art department and half in the English department. Um, I'd have to, so look, I'd have I to look it up. I should, I should know this. This is kind of embarrassing that I don't know what department she's in. I want to say it's English, but I could be totally wrong. And uh, anyway, she was there. You were there. Perhaps you passed each other on campus or something. Yeah. It, I mean, it's a great department, but um, it's pretty big. There were definitely several teachers that I didn't ever cross paths with. All right. And so you get to uh, New Orleans, and now you're in the big city. Uh, fun town. Fun place to go to college. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I loved it. I I was there before and after Katrina, and so a lot of times when I think of New Orleans, I think of kind of, you know, this before and afterness of it. Um, it really is different post Katrina. I mean, like spectacularly different. Yeah, I mean, y- yes, it is. It is different. Although now it just seems kind of like now it seems better. Honestly, although I don't live there anymore, so I don't know if my opinion is that valid. But when I've gone back, I've, I've well, I don't want to say better really because I don't know. There's just so many. There's so many different parts of New Orleans, and so many different ways that each each of them changed for better or worse. Yeah. So. Um, I just remember my my uncle driving me around. Uh, you know, this was probably a year after Katrina. My uncle Elmore mm-hmm. and I were driving around, and he's like, "Do you want to see it?" And I was like, "Sure." And I wasn't prepared. Like, I didn't realize like the the scope of destruction, like how how, yeah. how big the landmass was. That was just like it was like a just completely leveled. You know, everything gone. You know, for miles and miles and miles. So. Yeah, and and before it was gone, too, it was even creepier, kind of, I I moved, I was gone for a couple months and then moved back in December right after the storm, and it was, I mean, there were still tons of houses that were kind of standing, but it was like this creepy, like, mud ghost town thing. Yeah. Um, Well, that's kind of how it still was, like, a year later. I mean, I was just driving through these neighborhoods, they were empty, they were spray-painted by, like, FEMA, you know, like, they were all tagged, and... There was just yeah. garbage everywhere and then big piles of stuff. And it was just, I think there's still neighborhoods probably that haven't been fully, you know, leveled or cleaned up or 
whatever. Oh, is. sure. And there's, there's, there's still houses in like neighborhoods that are fine that are still, you know, got the FEMA X and the water line and haven't really been touched much. I but, um, life is slow down in the South. Like things move more slowly. Like I, I notice that every time I go down there. Oh, yes. Like customer, yes. customer service, you know, like. And there's <laughs> something about it I kind of love. You know, people just aren't in a hurry in the way that they are, say, in New York City or maybe, you know, Los Angeles. But uh, you go down to New yeah. Orleans and it's people just take their time. You know? <laughs> they really do. Um, they really do. And, I, you know, I love I love the one side of it, the kind of relaxed, sort of hospitable, we have all the time in the world attitude. Um, but I think kind of the flip side to that is, you know, the slowness of social progress and kind of the reluctance to talk about um, difficult or controversial topics, um, which has really kept a lot of things kind of awful there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know? So, okay, so you got through college. Were you particularly debauched? I always picture, like, if you're going to college in New Orleans, like, I picture that you you just are living this, like, party. And did you get work done? Were you a serious student? Did you stay away from I was a really serious student. I, I think, like, the first semester I was there, I think that's the semester that everybody is just, like, going to be a mess a little bit. Like, I'm sorry if my parents are listening, but the first semester I was in college definitely were, was, like, the the most crazy or whatever. But then after that, I just, I worked really hard. I did double major. I had two theses. I had a, um, almost a full-time job. Um, I'm just kind of a workaholic. That was really... That's really my poison of choice is work more than partying or anything like that. So, and your your double major was in what again? Um, visual arts and creative writing. So, like, you can paint? Like, what kind of visual arts are we talking? Um, yeah, I started more in kind of, like, 2D painting, drawing stuff, um, and then got a little bit more into sculpture. And by the time I did my thesis, I was um, more focused on sort of multimedia installation type stuff. Um, and video and things like that. But um, I kind of just, I mean, I really haven't made anything since then. And I, I had this amazing, I had a, a several amazing teachers there, but I had this one amazing teacher named Mark Grote that um, he was kind of the advisor on my thesis. And just through conversations with him, I kind of realized that everything I was trying to make in a visual medium, I was also trying to do with writing, but they weren't it wasn't such a hard line, like separating them where I really thought of like, Oh, I'm working on my English thesis that sees nonfiction essays about this stuff. And then my visual thesis is just like a totally separate thing. It has nothing to do with it. Um, but there, there's a, there's much more, it's all, you know, creative projects are all kind of, um, like thematic. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, and w at what point did you start to d decide that, you know, uh, it's going to be writing? Like, I'm leaning more towards this. This is what I, ha I you know, I'm more natural at, or this is where I want to focus my energies. Um, I guess I had, well, I had this other teacher who was incredible at, at Loyola in, um, in the English department. And I ha he was my thesis advisor. And he really, like, the beginning of my senior year was like, well, what are you going to do next year? And I was like, don't ask me that. And he was like, I think you should apply for grad school um, for writing. And I, I kind of thought, well, maybe I'll apply for writing and I'll apply for some art programs too. But I really just, like, once I looked at the work that I had done, the writing was just stronger. Like, I could actually apply to grad school with it. 
You could. Um, and you and you did you were you thinking New York? Like when did I feel like? For no, some, like you, New York is an awful place if you just visit it. Or I, I at least only had negative experiences when I visited New York before I lived here. I he like I, my my teacher thought that I should apply to Columbia and the new school and a few other places, but I don't know. I was kind of hesitant about New York, and I didn't think that I was going to pursue like. I mean, I, I really wanted to write more for, like, magazines, like, short-form stuff. I wasn't thinking, oh, I should be up there because I want to write a book and I'm going to be a part of this scene. I didn't even know there was a scene, or I didn't even know what an MFA really was until he suggested I apply for one. And and, you know? and it was creative nonfiction that you were – because you've written a novel, and so uh, I'm interested in, like, that jump because you went to graduate school for nonfiction. Yes. Um yeah, I, I mean, I went thinking I wanted to write kind of short-form pieces about visual art. And I was like, well, being in New York will be good for that because the art world's here, so I can kind of have access to it that way. Um, but I got into the program and realized I didn't really have enough time to do all the research I needed to do to be able to write those pieces. And also maybe I wasn't very good at talking about art um, or writing about art at that point. Um, it's hard to write about. I mean, you know, it's really hard to write about. It's like yeah. it's, it's like writing. I mean, writing about music is the same way, you know, because uh, you sort of have to hear the song, you know. So to write about, I, f- I find like, like when you want to find like a good literary literary biography, you can do that. But to find a really good biography of like a musician is sometimes trickier because the writing job is trickier. Maybe I'm maybe I'm totally wrong, but that seems like the yeah, because you can't. You can't just like quote passages exactly, from exactly. that writer's work. Yeah, and you can like kind of make sense of somebody like getting drunk and like working at a cafe or what you know. You can sort it, but then it's like the composition process and being in the studio and how this thing came to them. It seems a little bit, you know, seems to evade language more. Totally, um, yeah, and I think in visual art, it's even harder. Like it's even harder than music. Um, because I mean, just because it's it's so it's so broad, like the image can sort of encompass so many things, or if it's installation or like video art, just like forget about it. There's just like too many things that come up in some ways. Um, I think Jerry Saltz really nailed it. I think he really writes about art brilliantly, um, and he was kind of like my inspiration for wanting to write about art. Um, was reading his stuff. Um, I've never I've never read him. Jerry Saltz. Uh, yeah, Jerry Saltz, S-A-L-T-Z. He writes, um, I think he's still the art critic for New York Magazine. Okay. I want to say that's right. But uh, he came and did a lecture at Tulane that I crashed when I was a student at Loyola, and I just thought he was brilliant. So. And so then you get to Columbia, you start taking classes, you start to realize that writing about art is difficult, and then what? Yeah. Um, well, like all the other creative nonfiction writers that had bold ideas about all the research they were going to do, um, I ended up just writing personal stuff. I ended up writing personal essays and trying to write about the South, but I just, I mean, I think the writing I did about the South, like I had the most passion for it, but it was really the weakest stuff that I wrote while I was there. Why? Um, That's interesting because... I'm I'm wrestling with this right now. I'm writing personal stuff, uh, trying to cobble together a book. I work mm-hmm. I work in like a I gravitate towards kind of a collagey style. Um, uh, yeah, as and, do I. Yeah, and so I think like we have maybe a similar sensibility in that respect. But 
uh, why is that? I'm curious to hear why why that you felt like the stuff about the South and the stuff that was maybe closest to the bone or you know really personal was weaker. Um, I mean, I wanted to write about it so much. At a certain like I well, at first I didn't really. I was sort of like reluctantly got into it, but then once I was into it, I was like, um, I. I could write a lot of words about it, and I always had ideas, and, you know, I started to connect all these dots, and I read um, Another Bullshit Night in Suck City, and I just thought that was, like, gorgeous. Um, I just really loved the kind of... It felt really true. It felt really true to write about something so personal, and it felt, like, necessary. Somehow I was like, this is, you know, this story about um, religion in the South and this place I grew up in and feelings I have about it and feelings I have about the South. They felt really... Um, like necessary at the time, um, and I, it, I guess, I mean, I think they still are, but I, um, I was just too too, too close to it. I was going to say, do you need? You know? is, it, is it just a matter of critical distance? Uh, you need more time and perspective, and eventually you can, you know, because it's hard if you're too close to something, and if the emotions are too raw and immediate, it can be hard to have the kind of writerly perspective that you need to be able to render it properly. Right. And I think in some ways, like, I do have the perspective that I want to have on it, but I don't think I know how to translate that into words yet. Yeah. Maybe that's my problem. You know, it's just, it's, yeah. I go back and forth. And then I also sometimes worry about, like, narcissism. Like, is this narcissistic to be? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, what's the deal there? Like, I mean, I know that, like, there's, because <laughs> the thing is, is that, like, I like to read stuff by other people when they're talking personally. And I like to talk to people on this show and, like, just hear from them and, uh, what's going on in their lives. And I derive a sense of comfort from that. And like it bridges the divide, you know, and it makes you feel less alone or whatever. But as a writer, I sometimes worry, like, do people really need to hear this shit from me? Like, I, do we need one more person like talking about grief or do we need one more person talking about creative struggle or do you ever fall, right. in, do you ever fall into that mental trap? Like what's, how do we untangle that knot? Um, I totally fall into that trap, but uh, there was something I can't even eat this is it's so funny. There's something several years ago that I can't remember if I wrote or read um about um using your personal experience like as a kind of way to get to other people's personal experiences. I think you just have to like know that going into it that it really doesn't matter that it happened to you. It really doesn't. Um, whatever it is, because it's you're writing about it because it happens to other people. You're not writing about it because it happened to you. And I, I don't know exactly how to get that across because I do think that a lot of writing is, I mean, you know, any, any time you're writing memoir or any kind of something that's really personal, it does run the risk of just being narcissistic. And I think that's why you have to be so slow with it. You know, like it, it maybe will come across as narcissistic, even if you have the best intentions. Yeah. Well, and then what about the collage? So, what about the collage thing where like, I'll find myself wanting to, I, I love mini biography. I love, uh, like somehow buttressing like personal narrative up against like, you know, thematically related, uh, like that Michael Kimball postcard life story thing. Kind of. Yeah. Because I, but you know, it, it's like, uh, like pulling from the culture, especially like I love literary biography. So I'm always gravitating yeah. to, or, or artists, you know, people who I think maybe share some sort of similar approach to me and then. You know, I'll find myself thinking, like, am I just avoiding myself when I'm including these things? And how do you stitch the collage together in a way that feels cohesive? Uh, that's the challenge of, of collage, I guess. But, I mean, is there a, a mode that you found 
when you're working in that um, vein that works for you? Like, do you just do you just write out all these things in no particular order and then you know sequence it later, or what is it? How does it look for you? Um, I think that's how I write everything, even if I don't realize it. Like, um, yeah, I, I mean, I think that you, we just think this way. Like, we don't think in these really clear, linear ways. So sometimes it just—I feel like it always comes out just like a huge mess. Um, <laughs> even if it, even if I'm not like I'm trying to write something that just has a you know normal arc and is kind of a normal. Um, traditional shaped essay or story or whatever, it doesn't matter because the way that I, I'll get from from the idea to the finished product will be just a total chaotic, insane mess. Um, that makes me feel so, good. You're making me feel good by yeah. saying that. <laughs> <laughs> good. Um, so, and then how did you make the transition to fiction? Like, I, I want to hear about New Zealand. You went to New Zealand and were like working on farms. This was post uh, MFA? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I guess I, I, I was writing fiction while I was in um, the nonfiction essay, but I was just sort of doing it because I wanted to. I didn't ever think that I would like do anything with it. Um, I just, I just really enjoyed um, writing fiction. Um, and like we're talking short stories. See. Was that what you were just writing short stories? Short stories. Oh yeah, totally just short stories. And I had, I was like, couldn't imagine the idea of writing a novel. I was dating a guy who was in the MFA program in fiction who could just, I mean, like write. So he just would write, he could write so much. Like he had written a few novels, um, or like, you know, several short, like enough short stories to fill up like enough books. And they were all really good. I mean, there were varying degrees of, of good, just like everybody, but who is this um, guy? I don't like him. I know he's uh his name's Daniel Wallace. He's uh we're still good friends and he went to um do a PhD in Houston. And the thing about him though that I find so admirable was that he's written all this stuff, but he doesn't send any of it out. He was just did the MSA, he got into the MSA with, with um some stories and then now he's doing his PhD and he's still like you know, he keeps it really close to his chest, like he's not um just because he finishes something, he doesn't think that that gives him the right to send it out to people. Um, but he's doing, but now the, he's he's doing now the work. Trying to get an agent and stuff. He's doing the work. Oh, totally. Yeah. Um, but I think he, I think I was really like inspired by an example that he set. But I still didn't think that I was going to write a novel. Like I, I wasn't secretly writing a novel. I was secretly writing short stories, um, and that seemed kind of doable. Um, but uh, a novel just seemed like an awful idea. Um, and then I went to New Zealand. Why? Um, I, well, I had, uh, some of that egg donation money left and I realized that I could, I, I had a job. Did I have a job? I can't remember. I'd either, I either had a job I didn't want to have anymore or I, um, where I was finishing clear, a job. Clear, I don't remember clear, what it was. Clearly it meant the world to you, <laughs> this job. <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> um, there were different like kind of work opportunities in New York, I guess, that were falling apart or I wasn't enjoying. And um, I realized that I could just stay in New York and spend a shit ton of money on rent and food and all the, you know, high cost of living there. Or I could buy one expensive plane ticket to New Zealand for three months, and if I just hitchhiked 
and did willing workers of organic farms, it would cost the same. Like I could buy this one expensive plane ticket and then expect some incidental costs, but basically live on nothing by just kind of hitchhiking, hitchhiking and working on farms. So um, I did that. Well, I mean, okay, <laughs> beautiful, country, yeah. beautiful country, New Zealand. I've I've been there. It's uh, it's gorgeous. Oh yeah. And, yeah, and, I was and, completely mesmerized. And hitchhiking is like doable there. I, you know, like I feel like the, I feel like you know, there's so many sheep and these beautiful like pastoral, is that the right adjective? Pastoral. Yeah. Pasture absolutely. lands. Absolutely. <laughs> um, I think pastoral. Yeah. And then fa- like the the fresh water is like turquoise. You know, like the rivers are. Like, yeah. Oh, I don't know. It's just man. A, it's like the Hobbit, you know. And so, um, you get down there, you land in what Auckland or Christchurch or. Christchurch. Yeah. Okay. So you get to Christchurch and then you just stick your thumb out at the airport. What? Ha- like, how did you? How did you even know about the organic farms? Like, this is something you researched. Um, yeah. There's this organization called the Willing Workers of Organic Farms, um, and you basically sign up for it, and you're just connected with people who run really small organic farms that need some amount of help. And if you, um, the agreement is you'll work four hours a day. I think four hours a day, like five to six days a week for room and board. They don't pay you any money. Um, so it's, it's, it's re- really just a, um, an exchange of your time. So it's not even taxable. It's just kind of this, really, it's the way that a lot of organic farms in New Zealand can even afford to run. Um, there was one that I worked on that there's just no way, there's no way. And we had like 10 of us living there at a time. And you can kind of come and go as you, like you just sort of arrange with whoever you're staying with. Like oh, I can come for two weeks, I can come for a week, or whatever. And they have facilities. Um, they have facilities. Like, are you just crammed into this somebody's house? Um, I wasn't ever. I wasn't ever really crammed in anybody's house. But <laughs> yeah, the one the one guy, <laughs> the one guy had like this big old farmhouse that he had just. I think he'd been in his family for a long time and had several rooms. I mean, it was literally, a, it was probably a house that was designed to have a big family right. live in it that all worked on the farm. But, you know, his kids had moved out and it was just him and, and all of his, you know, random strangers that came to his house to work. And so what were you, um, we what were you doing? hard on that farm. What are you doing? That you, place, you shearing everything. sheep? Are you shearing sheep? I didn't shear a sheep. I didn't do any sheep shearing, unfortunately. Um, still a lot of like uh, kiwi picking or um, kind of collecting the eggs from this, these free-range um, chickens that would run around the kiwi orchard and sort of lay eggs wherever they wanted. Um, I did uh, did some work in a, a vineyard that was backbreaking. I have so much more respect for wine than I ever could have before. Um, like there's these nets that have to go over the grapes at a certain point so that the birds don't eat them all. And to put the nets on or take them off of the vines is just like backbreaking labor because there's this machine that goes down um, that's sort of coiling the net. But then you have to have a person sort of running in front of the machine, kind of guiding the, the nets off of the vine and onto this machine. And I was the person that would have to run up and down these aisles. I mean, it... I had I had I had never experienced that kind of labor. I think that it was it made me realize how lucky and coddled I had been, which was great. Well, and, and, and is, was it beautiful? Like, were you on like beautiful farms where it was just like breathtaking and inspiring? And then you would retreat to your room after working on the farm in the morning, and you would work on your novel. 
Is that how it looked? Um, a little bit. I wasn't really, um, I didn't really write that much while I was there. I was just sort of soaking things in. Um, I didn't even really read that much. I don't really know what I did. I I didn't. I kind of just walked around. <laughs> this is basically what I did in my free time, which is sort of wander. Were you, no, were, um, you, were you single when you were over there? You were just. Were you meeting people? I was. I was kind of single, but I had broken up with the boyfriend that I had been dating in Colombia. But it was all. I don't know. It was all very precious and complicated i'm sure you were sending postcards um, and whatnot i don't even i don't think i sent anybody a postcard i didn't even think i called home once Catherine, what were you doing I don't, in New Zealand? <laughs> what was i doing it's very confusing to me i think that's what like i just i just felt like i had to go and then when i got back i was like why did i do that and you know you know after you take a trip and you get back and it almost seems like it didn't happen like yeah. everything you come back to your life and you're it's like this long dream that you had and you have no evidence of it right um it sort of felt like that but it, but a really extreme version of it because i had been in this beautiful lush country sort of with all the time in the world and then i came back to new york which was just as loud and dirty and insane and cramped <laughs> and expensive as it had always been and so i had this huge shock of like where have I been? Why am I here? What is all this shit? And like, what's wrong with me? You know, I think it's just the things you feel when you're 25, but yeah. I just felt them with this trip in the middle of it, I guess. So um, you, you get back and then you, st- and then you write this novel. Yeah. Then that's when I sort of started to write it. Um, and I really think that it was just an excuse for me to be able to go on Google maps and sort of scroll through the places that I had been. Cause I, I just couldn't stop thinking about it and, sort of going over it in my head all the time. So New Zealand was the inspiration, or like part of the inspiration? Yeah, it was. There was something there that, I mean, I met a lot of different people that I, I found really inspiring and interesting. Um, and yeah, the, it was partially that. And there's a whole culture of like travelers there, you oh, know? Sure, yeah. No, um, Auss- Aussies and, and uh, Kiwis, like they really get out and it's kind of a remote corner of the world. So like they get out. But I feel like as a cultural value, you know, those countries like support young people getting out and like really seeing the world in ways that like Americans don't. And then yeah, I, th- I think, I think when people go down there to visit, they tend to stay a while just cause it takes such a long time to get there. Uh, yeah. Or something yeah. like that. It's beautiful. Yeah. So the, the protagonist of the novel, like there's certainly a lot of me in, in her, but a lot of, she's mostly, I think inspired by a, a lot of people that I, a lot of different types of people that I saw and met there you like, know like farm workers or just people that you caught rides from or all of the above all of the above people i met in cities and um people i met in the back of cars that we both hitchhiked into or you know just people have a million different reasons for for traveling um for traveling for a long period of time or hitchhiking or working on this random farm and um I don't know. I like the I like the idea of of someone that was on the run from something. So, I don't know. Those those kinds of people just are interesting to me. Sure. And so, how did the book? Uh, you know, once you completed the manuscript, how did you sell it to FSG? How did that go? Um, it went crazy. Um, I was lucky to start working with the agent that I had, and um, who's the agent? Her name's Jen Aw. She's at the, the Wiley Agency. Okay. Um, and 
I don't know. I sort of, okay, actually, I got, I forgot about this, but I got um, an email from Eric Chinsky, who's an, an editor at, um, at, he's my editor at FSG, but I had, he had read something I had written somewhere. I don't even know how, if it got passed to him or what, um, but he emailed me and just asked me like what I was working on because I had my website just had some links to random fiction and book reviews and stuff. And that was like the week that Jen was about to send the novel out. And so I just, you know, sent it to her and I was like, um, this person <laughs> seems to be from FSG and wants to know what I'm working on. And that was just like super surprising to me because like I've always admired FSG a lot. I remember several years ago I had reviewed one of their books, but somehow he had gotten lost. The galley had gotten lost in the mail. So I had to go to their office to like get my copy. And, um, just remember like taking the elevator up there and then seeing the kind of surly um, desk lady <laughs> in the front, you know, and I'm just like, there's always, so a, there's always, there's always a surly desk lady. I feel like at these, like, I know, these, especially at these like really like, uh, you know, highbrow institutions. Like I, I guarantee you there's, right. there's gotta be a surly desk lady at the New Yorker. I'm sure there is. Uh, well, it used to be a surly desk man, but I think they actually did away with their, they're like front desk people. Now it's just like, um, now that it's, guy was kind of famous. I can't remember what his name was. Now. Well, there, and there was—I like, want to say there was a woman, but she might not have been the surly desk lady. But there's somebody who wrote a memoir about working at the New Yorker in like the middle, you know, the middle to late 20th century. But oh yeah, yeah. Nowadays, yeah. It's, it's all automated. There's just like what security and a robot or something—a surly robot. <laughs> no, I don't know. I think that they like at the New Yorker specifically. They they used to have. I don't remember what his name was. I interned there when I was at Columbia, which is why I remember. But I had some friends that worked there for much longer than I did. Did actual work there instead of what I did. Um, that I don't remember what his name was. This is going to kill me. I'll I'll think of it. Email it to you. Okay. But no, at, at FSG, I went up to get this book and I and left and was sort of like, you know, I was like sweating going up there. I was like, God, I'll never I'll never go to that place again. <laughs> Whoa, that was crazy, you know. Um, and now look at you. Yeah. Well, yeah, now I've been there two or three times, <laughs> and it still makes me anxious a little bit. But, um, uh, yeah, so we sent we sent the novel out, and, and really Eric was the most excited about it the most quickly. I think that um, we just have a really similar sensibility. He He's, um, he's an excellent editor, and he did uh, uh, Atmospheric Disturbances by Rivka Gauchin, which is a book that I just – loved right. like when i read it it came out in 2008 or so um and i he doesn't do that much fiction but that was one of his that was one of his um his books in the last couple of years but yeah i think we just have the same sort of similar like twisted sense of humor and stuff um well, that's, also been... it's lucky. I mean, you know, I mean, my God, you know, yeah. like somebody, an editor at FSG happens to reach out, like find your stuff online, reaches out to you out of the blue the same week that you're about to go out with your novel. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. It was sort of like, I sort of feel like somehow it must be orchestrated or there's got to be some catch that I don't know about, but it's a practical um, joke. <laughs> right. You're, right. You're the gonna, whole thing. You're going to find out in July that it was all just a joke. <laughs> Uh, so it's an elaborate scam. <laughs> I go to my book launch, and they're like, "There's no book." This is so funny. So, uh, uh, what are you? Are you working on anything new, or are you just kind of like 
gearing up for this thing to, to roll out and basking in the glow of success? What's happening now? Um, yeah, I'm working on, I'm working on a new novel, but, uh, I had a bunch of, um, a bunch of like, like I actually became like a freelance writer a little bit recently. I had like kind of a bunch of little, little things that I can do right now. So what do you mean? Like magazine magazine work? Yeah. Like, yeah, this, this essay, if it ends up working out about the South and then, um, a little review and then, um, what else? Some other things that I won't, I don't want to jinx myself about, but. Well, give me a um, hint. Like a big mag, like big time stuff or what? what? No, no, not, not, I mean, yes, yes and no. Not, it's not, I'm not like secretly working on some awesome profile for the New Yorker or something cool like that. Um, but, uh, just like, just several little things like glossy magazine stuff that, um, is a nice challenge and something different for me to do, but I, I always kind of, um, don't expect stuff to go through. You know, I've, I've like, I've had like stories at, um, glossy magazines in the last couple of years that have gotten like canned in different ways. Um, to the point now where I'm like, oh, I don't even want to jinx myself. Okay. I can respect that. I'm kind of the same way, yeah. but uh, well, it's been fun talking with you. I appreciate you taking the time, and I congratulate you on this book. It'll be exciting to see it uh, roll out in July, and I certainly wish you all the best uh, with it and with uh, the next book and with uh, all of this top-secret, glossy magazine work that you're doing. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. <laughs> well, thank you so much for inviting me. Okay, you guys, there you go. That's Catherine Lacey. Her debut novel, once again, is called Nobody Is Ever Missing. It's due out this summer, July 2014, from FSG Originals. If you're listening prior to July, you can pre-order the book right now. Go do that. If you're listening after July 2014, then uh, go get the book. It's available now. Uh, You can find Catherine Lacey online at CatherineLacey.com. That's Catherine with a C. Uh, You can also find her on the Twitter, where her handle is at underscore... Catherine Lacey. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for all the good music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And uh, I should clarify that Kill Rockstars did not produce uh, Take On Me, the 1985 smash hit from AHA. That was released in the, uni- in the United States by uh, Warner Brothers. Warner, uh, Warner Bros. Hey, uh, don't forget about the app, the free official Other People app. It's available now for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. It is the best way to listen to this program and to access the show's full archives. So here's what you do, folks. Listen up. Uh, Please go download the app. The app itself is free. Once you have the app, uh, you get the most recent 50 episodes of this program free. They will automatically upload to the app. You don't have to do anything. Every time you want to listen, you simply go to the app. The latest episodes will be there waiting for you. Uh, You can favorite your favorite episodes within the app. You can also download episodes to listen to while you're offline. Uh, And then best of all, you can access premium content and the show's full archives right there inside the app. For only $2 a month, you sign up for uh, Other People Premium and you get access to everything. Every single episode of this program, including conversations with authors like George Saunders, Cheryl Strayed, Kate Zambrino, David Shields, Edwidge Dantica, Jess Walter, Tao Lin, Blake Butler, you name it, okay? So please go get the app. The app is free. And then from there, please sign up for premium and support this program for $2 a month. I would appreciate that. Okay, so uh, no cavities. 
at the dentist. And, uh, you know, for those of you who listen regularly, you know that I had an extremely disturbing dental situation a few months ago. Uh, I want you to be aware of the fact that this time around I was free and clear, 100% healthy, no cavities. I'm very proud of that. Uh, I take a lot of personal pride in my uh, oral hygiene situation. I brush every day, at least twice a day, uh, and I floss every single day. And I encourage you to do the same. And if you can't find a toothbrush, then uh, eat an apple because that is nature's toothbrush. Please remember that Kafka was a vegetarian and that Nietzsche once referred to Dante as, quote, a hyena who writes poetry on tombs, end quote. That is it for now. Thanks once again to Catherine Lacey. Go get her book. I will be back again in just a few days with another episode of this program for your consumption. Okay? If you're listening while driving, uh, please stay alert at the wheel. Please do not succumb to road rage and despair. Just uh, try to relax. Listen to some AHA. Listen to some Norwegian synth pop and uh, try to come to grips with the deep absurdity of your situation. This is absurd, by the way. Life is completely absurd, and it should be treated accordingly. And and uh, what does that song mean, anyway? Take on me. Take on me. <laughs> what the fuck does that mean? <laughs> <laughs>